we got a chance to go to Bethany Beach Place in Michigan. There's an older couple in our church, Dan and Wendy, who own a nice beach home. And about four months ago, they said, Peter, would you like to take your family and go there for a few days? I said, absolutely. So last week, we went there for about three or four days, and we had a wonderful time. They had a nice home. There was a nice beach area. We got to go swimming and all that stuff. While I was there one night, as I was thinking about the place we were in and the incredible graciousness of the host, incredible graciousness of Dan and Wendy in giving that place to us, I am a preacher, so of course I thought about God's grace. I thought about God's grace. And I thought about this analogy. I thought about this analogy of somebody comes up to you and, and offers you a $3 million diamond and says, here, because all the single ladies are going, that would be nice. But you don't have money to pay it. You don't have money to pay for it. But you're also partly embarrassed and slightly even mad or angry that the guy thinks you can't afford it. And of course, you can't afford it. So to make yourself feel better, you reach into your pocket and you pull out 30 bucks and you go, here. may make you feel a little bit better, but what are you doing to the incredible graciousness of the gift giver? You know what you do? You insult the gift giver, you reject the gift, and you miss out on this incredible joy of being able to have a relationship with him or her. And then I thought about our relationship to God and how it's similar to the incredible graciousness of God. Why? Because God comes to us with this incredible gift that we can't pay for. And, And we stand there and we go, you know what? I'm not willing to admit that I'm spiritually in poverty. I'm not willing to admit that I'm jacked up. I'm not willing to admit that my life is a mess. I'm not willing to admit that I don't have what it takes to put it together. And I resent the fact that you're saying it's free. It's that easy? It's free? So I just come and I go, here, God, I throw myself at your mercy. I offer my life to you and I receive your forgiveness as a free gift. And you go, that's nonsense. So what do you do? You pull into your pocket. And that's like saying, so let me clean my life up first and then give it to you. What are you doing when you do that? That's like pulling out 30 bucks and saying to the person here. Does it make you feel better? Perhaps. But it's an insult to the incredible, gracious gift giver. How do you receive a gift like that that you can't afford? How do you give the gift like that that you don't deserve? You know what you do? You admit your poverty. You acknowledge your poverty. You, you swallow your pride. And you receive it with joy. And you enjoy it. You don't receive it begrudgingly. You receive it and you enjoy it. That's how you receive that gift. We do the same thing with the grace of God. What? Free? I don't think so. Let me, let me, let me clean myself because then I can add or contribute. And we accept it. If not begrudgingly, we reject it. C.S. Lewis said this. A joyless Christian is an oxymoron. Because you cannot experience and encounter this incredible grace of God and remain a joyless person. I tell you the most miserable Christian in the world. It's not the Christian who's rejected God. It's the Christian who's trying to earn their acceptance with God. The most miserable Christians in the world. How are you doing? How am I doing? How's your joy life? How's your joy life? 
I tell you what, I'm preaching to myself this morning because I don't feel particularly joyful. And I'll tell you why. It's not because of various other things. It's because the grace of God. This incredible grace of God that I can't afford, I can't earn, has been lavished on me. (sighs) Anybody relate this morning? Admit your spiritual poverty, swallow your pride, and enjoy it. Are you a Christian? Some of y'all said they're going, well, I'm trying. You're trying? That's not how the Christian life works. Are you a Christian? The answer is, yeah. Can you believe it? Me. I'm a Christian. Jesus has accepted me. You a Christian? I'm trying. Of course, you've been to churches that say, try harder. (laughs) That's why you said, then I'm done with God. Bye. What do you do? Swallow your pride. Admit you need him. And enjoy it. Everything that ails us is because of these three things. Our sin, God's grace, God's mission. What do I mean? Everything that ails us in our lives and our failure to see who God is is because we minimize, we downplay our sin. I talk about this a lot in our church, right? Listen, listen. We decrease the holiness of God to make ourselves feel better about our sin, right? But when you do that, you decrease the power of grace in the process. We minimize our sin. We fail to recognize I am more wicked and I am more sinful than I dare believe. But we also minimize God's grace. How many of us are thankful that we are great sinners, but God is a great Savior? I love it when you guys clap to gospel proclamation. I love that. I love that. And that you don't clap to when I go, you're special. I know. No. We are great sinners. But God is a great Savior. Amen? Yes, he is. God's grace. And then we minimize God's mission. What is that? God through Christ has entered history to renew the whole world. God through Christ has ushered in his kingdom to renew the whole world. And God calls us to join him in on that. By the way, so many people these days, Christians talk about causes. You know, that's my cause. That's my cause. Hello, gospel proclamation. There's only one cause. And it's God's cause. And he asks us to join him in on that. Okay? So we have a purpose and a mission for our lives. Wherever we are, what we're doing, it's about God's cause in this world. And so it is when we minimize or downplay our sin, God's grace, and God's mission that we go awry. Well, the book of Acts. Hello? We're we're back? Book of Acts. It's ultimately about how God has dealt with our sin through his grace and has sent people on God's mission to transform and change the world. Does anybody else get blown away by the fact that God asked us to participate in that? Anybody? Anybody get blown away by the fact that fallible, sinful human beings like you and I, God calls us to join him in on this ultimate restoration project. Jesus said that when he first came, he died and he rose and he ushered in this process to make all things new. And then he says, when I come back, I'm going to finish it. In the meantime, you participate in that. That's amazing to me. 
It's amazing to me. And the book of Acts chronicles, it's a historical document, chronicles a group of people who began this process of joining with God to reconcile sinful humanity to God and to reconcile this broken world because they believed that a dead man rose from the dead. And he is the Messiah of Israel. And, and, and Acts has been so far, this is a brief summary, Luke painting a portrait of God's providential act in history. God is moving, God is moving, he is unstoppable. And the mission of church advancing. And we've seen up from chapters 1 to chapters 20, 21 or so, how God is moving throughout, overcoming barriers, overcoming challenges, and all kinds of wonderful things are happening. Here, remember? Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost coming of the Holy Spirit, the healing of the crippled beggar in chapter 3, the bold defense of the Sanhedrin and the apostles released in chapters 4 and 5, the public denouncement of Simon the sorcerer in chapter 8, the mission to Samaria that's successful in chapter 8, the conversion of the church's greatest enemy, Saul, in chapter 9, conversion of Cornelius in chapters 10 and 11, planting of the church in Antioch in chapter 11, Peter's miraculous escape from prison in chapter 12, Striking down of the, of the sort of the secular power of Herod, King Agrippa, the first in chapter 12. And of course, the highly successful missionary journeys of Paul in chapters 13 to chapter 20. Outside of death of Stephen, so far what we've seen is the move of God going forth. Experiencing victory over victory over barriers and challenges. Now, I'm so glad that the book of Acts doesn't end in chapter 20. Anybody else? Do you know why? Because the book of Acts ended chapter 20, here's what we would think. We would falsely think, you know what? If you serve God, he'll give you victory after victory. Is that reality? I'm so thankful for the rest of these chapters. And by the way, we're finishing Acts in the next four weeks. And you need to tell your friends that have been here to come back because they need to hear this. Because in Acts chapters 21 to 28, here's what we see. We see trials. We see imprisonment. We see suffering. We see hardships. We see shipwreck. We see persecution. We see all these things that is there to correct our misconception about the reality of the Christian life. And that is, that is, the promise of the Christian life and the Christian mission in our lives. It's not that everything will go well for us, but that our lives will be well lived. The various incredible lesson that we will learn from chapters 21 to 27 is this. Check this out. That sometimes God works his mission. God spreads his kingdom. God does his greatest work even and sometimes especially through our weaknesses and our defeats. Sometimes God does his greatest work of his mission and of transforming the world when we fail, when we are weak, when we are down. The critical lesson that we are forced to grapple with and learn is that there are ways that our trials and our difficulties, our suffering and our hardships make us more effective representatives of his kingdom than when things are going well. Let me stop there and just ask, how many of you guys this morning could testify to that? Raise your hands high. 
How many of you guys sitting here today, that's more than like two-thirds of you, could say, it is because I've gone through that. It is because I experienced that. It is because of those things in my life. And if I had to do it all over again, there's a part of me that says, I would never want to go through that. But Peter, I can stand here and say that those things, those trials, those difficulties, those hardships, is what made me who I am today to make me that much more effective for his kingdom. How many of you guys to say that? Say amen. Amen. See, we know this in reality. We know this in reality. But what do we struggle with? When we're in it, when we're in the thick of it, we're saying, God, where are you? What's the purpose? How does this work out? How does point A connect to point B? What in the world could this possibly do? Here's what we're going to see. Chapters 21 to 28. We're going to see that throughout these chapters, apparent coincidences are used by God. Difficulties and sufferings of his best servants are used by God. Hostility of the enemies of the gospel that oppose at every point of the way used by God. Sins and flaws of his servants are used by God to ultimately advance God's mission in the world and his work in our lives. That's what we're going to see. Is that good news? Is that good news? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25, and I'm just going to read, make comments and notes, and then we'll draw principles at the end. Chapter 25, if you don't have your Bible, please refer to the screen. Don't you love technology? Three days after arriving in province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Church, look up here. Who is Festus? He is the new sheriff in town. No, he is the new governor of this province of Rome, especially Judea and Palestine. And if you remember, I hate to do a lot of review from previous chapters from what David and Michael have preached. But Festus is a new governor of this area. Now, why is he coming down? Here, check this out. The Roman officials, the Romans like to govern the areas that they've conquered through local officials, especially the aristocracy. Why? Because they could use them, essentially, to do their dirty work. And if things go bad, backlash doesn't come to them. So these Roman governors that are delegated like to go to their constituency and make nice nice. So Festus goes down. Verse 2, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. This is long-term hatred. If you're following us or just tuning in, it's been two years. It's been two years because Paul has been in prison for two years because the governor before Festus, Felix, didn't have, you know what, to essentially let him go. Even though charges against Paul were proven to be false. And so here they come again, new governor. Hey, this is our opportunity to get Paul again, so let's go for it. Verse 3, they urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held in Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against a man there if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court in order that Paul be brought before him. 
When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Now, here's what's going on. The opponents of Paul, these Jews, are wanting to kill Paul. And so they're continuing to bring these charges in hopes that the Roman authorities would essentially arrest him. And the charges they're bringing are that A, Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. And B, that Paul is causing civil unrest by causing these riots. The problem is, no matter how many times they bring those charges against Paul, they couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove it. And here, once again, they can't prove it. Verse 9, Festus, wishing to do Jews a favor. So we see Festus is just as much a coward as Felix. Festus doesn't have, you know what, to say, those charges against Paul have been unproven. Guys, it's been two years. Will you get over it? Let him go. He doesn't. Why? New governor in town. He says, you know, I got to make nice, nice with my constituency. So I want to sort of appease them. So I can't just let him go. So what do I do? Verse 10. Verse 9. Paul, Ephesus, wishing to do Jews a favor, said to Paul, you will need to go up to Jerusalem and stand before trial with me there on these charges. Paul answered, look, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I don't refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. So I appeal to Caesar. What's Paul doing there? You know what? He's exercising his rights as a Roman citizen. He's going, you know what? Every Roman citizen has a right to say, I want to appear before Caesar and present my case. The Supreme Court, if you will. Every Roman citizen had that right. So what does Festus do? After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you've appealed to Caesar, so you'll go. By the way, the Caesar of the Roman Empire at this time was a guy named Nero. Do you remember Nero? He's sort of a good guy for about five years, and then something happened. He snapped. And Nero was responsible for one of the severe, most severe persecutions ever in the history. Many scholars believe that it was under Nero that Paul was ultimately executed. Verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Now, everybody stop here. Everybody look up here. Let's have fun. Let's have fun. Okay? So I got to give you some background. There were essentially two groups of people who had power in, in the Roman Empire in these local regions. The real power, of course, lay with the guy that the Roman government said, hey, you're the one with real authority, which was the governor. The other person that had power, and I put that in quotes, was the Jewish king who sort of ruled over that part of Judea and Palestine, okay? He was sort of, in a lot of ways, kind of a puppet, if you will, of the Roman official. But he did have authority to do two things. Number one, he had authority over the temple, the Jewish king, that is. And also, he had the authority to hire or appoint high priests to the temple. Interestingly enough, who is the guy that is king over Judea at this time? His name is Herod Agrippa II. Let's talk a little bit about the Herods. What a family. What a family line. Some of y'all know families like this, maybe. Who was his great-granddaddy? He was the Herod that ordered the execution of all the babies when he found out that Jesus was born, who might be king of Israel. His father is the guy who murdered Apostle James. And by the way, Acts chapter 12, do you remember? He had a bit of a God complex, so God strikes him down, and he's eaten by worms. Okay? That's his father. His uncle, oh, his uncle, his great uncle. Remember his great uncle, another Herod? You know who he was? He murdered his brother and took on his brother's wife as his wife. And by the way, had John the Baptist beheaded. 
Should I go on? I'll go on one more, okay? So here's Grippa, okay? He is along this line of Herods, okay? And by the way, who is his sister? And I put that in quotes, sister. It's Bernice. Who is Bernice? It was well known during that time that Bernice and Agrippa, who were blood brothers and sisters, were more than siblings. <laughs> I've just been feeding some facial expressions out there, okay? It would have been like National Enquirer had a field day. You know what I'm saying? National Enquirer, are they siblings or are they spouses? No one knows. You know, it was one of those. Bernice had married king of Sicilia, a guy named Polimo, but divorced him. And where is she now? Oh, she's living with her brother. <laughs> that was Bernice. So here's Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa and Bernice. Why are they important, though, besides, you know, National Enquirer, Jerry Springer material? Here's the dilemma that Festus is in. He's looking at the scene. He's going, okay, so here's the deal. Okay, I can't just let this guy Paul go because if I do, the Jews are probably going to revolt and not like me and I'm going to have a hard time. But he also knows, can you imagine? A huge legion of soldiers are carrying Paul to Rome. Da, 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 da. They arrive in Rome. And Caesar says, what's up? We have a prisoner, your highness. Okay, why is he here? Does anybody know? Does anybody, anybody know why Paul's here? Does anybody know? Everybody off with their heads. Why are you wasting my time? In other words, you can't just take a prisoner to Rome without written charges of why he's going to appear before Caesar. Caesar's the, he's a busy guy. So Festus is in there going, I can't just make stuff up, but they're talking about things that I don't understand, like bringing a Gentile to the temple. Like, who cares? That doesn't seem that bad to me. And he's clearly not causing civil right. How do I, how, wait a minute. What's that? Some Jewish scholar king by the name of, what? Festus, I mean, Festus, Agrippa, the second of the Herod family, and his wife, you mean sister. Yeah, yeah, anyway, anyway, they're coming to Caesarea. Well, this is perfect. Then I'll just ask them to listen to what Paul has to say so I can write these written charges and send them to Rome. That's the place that Festus is in. So look what happens in verse 14. So since they're spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, hey man, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked him to be condemned. I told him that this is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. So when they came here with me, I didn't delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. But when his accusers got up to speak... They, they didn't have any charges with any of the crimes I'd expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Everybody, I love that. You know I love that. Not only it tells us that Festus has been listening, but it tells you what the essence of the gospel was. Festus doesn't say to Agrippa, yeah, and he keeps going on about how Jesus died for their sins and if you believe in him, you can go to heaven when you die. What does he say? He goes, he keeps talking about this dead man named Jesus who rose again from the dead. Question. How many of your non-Christian friends, if somebody said about you, what's he about? Would say, oh, him? He actually believes that Jesus Christ died for his sins of the world and he rose again from the dead and he's alive today. Essence of the gospel. 
We'll talk about that next week, okay? Talk about that next week. He goes on. Verse 20. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and send trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be handed over to the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, Hey, you know what? Let me hear him myself. Check this out. When is this taking place? Only 25 years later, only 25 years after the death and rest of an older couple in our church, Agrippa knows what happened. He's known about Jesus. He's known about his work. He's known about what people claim to believe. Furthermore, he's also heard about a guy named Paul who grew up a Pharisee of the Pharisees and was a star of Judaism and then something snapped in him and he turned. So Agrippa says, I've been wanting to find out about who this Paul dude is. Bring him in. Verse 22. He replied, okay, tomorrow you'll get to hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Everybody? I keep saying, look up here, but look up here. Check this out. Oh, can you imagine this scene? Imagine the inaugural ball. Church. People are wearing tuxedos. Who's who of Caesarea is there? Anybody that's important is there. The political leaders, the military leaders, the business leaders, people that, you know, kind of have all the authority. They're there as to go to Bethany Beach Place in, Beach Place in Michigan. Again, there's an older couple, older couple in our church. And here's Paul in chains. What do you think Paul's thinking? I tell you what he's thinking. He's going, I got him exactly where I want him. Paul is thinking, remember, this is the same guy that did in Acts 20. I don't care if I die. My life is worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and proclaim the gospel. That's the same Paul. And he's looking around this room of people who's who highfalutin on, you know, toasting, blah, blah, blah. And he is looking and saying, God, look at this amazing opportunity. He gets it. This was an enormous, here are my points for today and we're done, strategic opportunity. Why? Imagine any major U.S. city or any city in the world where the key leaders have descended and there is a preacher with an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and take into consideration that up until now, the spread of the gospel has almost exclusively been among the poor and the uneducated. And now, and now, Paul is standing before, for the first, first time ever in history, and I don't know if it's ever repeated, in a room full of the most influential, the most powerful people in charge. And he gets an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Um, Huli, are you here? Huli and I have been to Colombia three times. I love that country. I wish I could adopt that as my second country. Huli, I'm finally getting the skin tone I need, though, right? Maybe I'll... <laughs> that's, just, that's just an inside joke between me and Julio. So if none of y'all laugh, that's fine, okay? Anyway, Julio and I. Here's the reason why I love Colombia. Julio has a mission and a vision that I just love. You know what that is? Colombia 
is much like the city and much like the society that it was during the Roman Empire. Colombia has what they call six stratas in socioeconomically. In Colombia, the gospel has been primarily proclaimed to some of the poorest of the poor. And Julia and I have had conversations for the last year and a half, two years about Peter. But the poor have a difficult time reaching the elites, reaching the intellectuals, reaching the wealthy of the country who have all this authority and power. And so his heart and my heart is that if God allows a church to be planted where the gospel we proclaim to those with power and authority who influence all of Columbia. Is it exciting? It's hugely exciting. But the challenges are enormous, and that's the same thing that the society faced. And yet Paul stands in front. Here's another little side note. You ready? This is so cool. It brings the whole second Peter, what is it, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, where God says, I, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It brings that verse in a whole different light. Guys, what have we been saying throughout the book of Acts? We've been saying throughout the book of Acts that the gospel is for, say it. You're paying attention. Gospel is for everyone. And when he says everyone, do you know what it includes? Paul is standing to proclaim the gospel to King Agrippa. Hear it, Agrippa. Who is he in the line of? He is part of a family that has known nothing but corruption and violence. He is part of a family that has opposed the gospel every turn. Agrippa is part of the family that has killed and executed some of the most prominent leaders in the Christian movement. And yet, Paul is positioned by God to proclaim the gospel even to him. Do you know why? Because our sin reaches far, but God's grace reaches farther. Our sin reaches deep, but God's grace reaches deeper. Our capacity to sin is nothing compared to God's capacity to forgive. God's willingness to forgive is nothing compared to God's willingness. You know what I mean. Is that good news? That is great news. And so here is Paul with the gospel of Jesus Christ to this family that has murdered, executed the leading Christian leaders. He is, he is standing before this family that knows nothing but violence and corruption. And he is ready to proclaim the gospel of grace. Some of you in this room need to hear this today. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. Jesus Christ died for you. You were so sinful that he had to die, but you are so loved that he was glad to die. You can look at your sin and say, you know what? My life is a total wreck, Peter. I have literally lived and camped outside the gates of hell. Not even God, not even God, not even Herod was beyond the grace of God. How many of you say this is good news? This is wonderful news. This is wonderful gospel news. I want you to know if you're not a Christian today and your life has been nothing but perhaps wickedness and depravity and absolute rebellion against God, I want you to know that God loves you so much that he came in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he lived the life you should have lived and he died the death you should have died. And the Bible says when we place our faith in him, the life that he lived becomes ours. That is, the perfect righteousness of Christ becomes imputed theological word given to us free of charge. And we can be reconciled to God. That promise is for you. That 
promises for you. It was a strategic opportunity. Secondly, though, it was a Romans 28 opportunity. You know, I had so much fun this week just looking at this passage. Romans 28 opportunity, which says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Why? Think about how many things God had to work together for Paul to be at this place. Think of how many things that God had to, in his divine orchestration, work together so that Paul could stand before Felix, Festus, and ultimately the imperial court itself in front of Caesar. Think of how many interwoven, interrelated events that God had to orchestrate starting in chapters 21 on. Let me just give you a sample. Can I do that? Think of how many events God had to work together. Do you remember how this all started? Paul shows up in Jerusalem and he says, you know what, I'm going to appease the Jews because they think I'm not a real Jew. So, okay, I'll go through the purification rites. And so, therefore, Paul shows up at the temple. If Paul doesn't listen and doesn't show up at the temple, none of this happens. But what happens at the temple? Oh, there are a handful of Jews who know Paul from Asia who happen to be at the temple. Coincidence? Of course. At the hour, at the time that Paul is there. And so they start a riot and they start beating him to a pulp. But Paul doesn't die. Why doesn't he die? Oh, just at the nick of time, somebody goes and reports to the Roman troops, they're mauling somebody. And so the Roman commander comes and just in the nick of time saves Paul. Uh, that's uh, chapter uh, 21, right? Here's chapter 23. What happens chapter 23? Do you remember the assassination plot? There's an assassination plot on Paul's life. Oh, and accidentally, coincidentally, Paul has a nephew. And Paul's nephew is right there, and he hears the assassination plot. Oh, coincidence? Of course. So he goes and he tells Paul. And Paul tells the Roman, the Roman general. So what happens after that? The Roman commander in the royal capital named Claudius, who is a fair and just man, and he thinks, you know what? This is unjust that Paul is, 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 is persecuted like this. So he says, I need to get this guy a trial. And so therefore, Claudius sends Paul to where Paul is now, Caesarea. While Paul's in Caesarea, the imperial governor at the time is a guy named Felix. And Felix, of course, puts Paul in prison for two years. Let me stop here. This is where some of you guys are. This is where some of you are. You're you're Paul sitting in prison for two years. And you're going, all right. I went to the temple and finally run into those darn Jews from Asia who knew me. I wouldn't be here. But they recognize me. They start a riot. They start beating me to a pulp. Roman governor comes. He sends me to Caesarea because he's a just and fair man. But I'm languishing here, God. What about the charge to proclaim the gospel? God, I've been here two years. I mean, I know you're sovereign and all. I know you're perfect and I know you're in control and I know you're loving and I know you're just. But man, it seems really, really dark right about now. After two years, Felix is gone. Fest, each place in Michigan. Each place in Michigan. There's Fest is another coward as a Roman governor, right? And what does Festus do? Festus decides, I can't just let him go. What am I gonna do? To make sure that I get some charges that I can to make sure that I get some charges that I can send to Rome. And oh by the way, it just happens. Church. Dan and the town. A guy named Agrippa, who's familiar with Jewish history. Coincidence? If you're a Christian and you believe in accidents and coincidence in your life, your God is too small. 
that might be a God of your imagination or making, but he is not the God of the Bible. With God, there are no such. Each place in Michigan, place in Michigan, there's a. Is that good news to anybody? Let me show you a passage that I've been meditating on for years. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. It says, a lot is cast into the lap, but it's very decision is from the Lord. Do you know what this is saying? Even flip of a coin are not left to random chance. And some of you need to hear this today. You are fearful and you're anxious because your belief, even as a Christian, is that your future, your life is left up to random chance. And so whatever happens, happens. And the Bible emphatically says a just and loving God is in control of all of history and he is moving it and orchestrating it in a way that brings glory to him, good to you, and salvation to the world. There's no such thing as coincidence, accident, and just things that just happen. God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. Think of how many things could have just fallen apart if they didn't happen exactly in the order, exactly in the way they did. If Paul doesn't listen to his Jewish brothers and go to the temple to go through the purification rites, he doesn't stand before the imperial court. If Paul's nephew hadn't been in the exact same place to hear the assassination plot that ultimately gets reported to a just and fair man, Paul never stands in front of the imperial court. All of these events that happened exactly in the order, exactly in the way they did, needed to happen for Paul to stand before and preach the gospel in an arena that up until that time had never been reached. What does it mean for you and for me? It's simple and profound and powerful. How often does God seem absent on the outside? How often do we believe, you guys, that every single thing that happens in our lives that God is orchestrating, God is managing, even the minutest details Yes, even the chaotic things. Yes, even the hard things. Yes, even the awful things. Things that seem to make no sense that a sovereign, just, loving God is orchestrating every single minutest of details in the way and in the order he needs to to advance his kingdom, to bring about good to us, and to result in salvation and redemption for all of mankind. You know what this means? means that for some of you, there are things that God is doing right now, and you're, you're looking smack at it. You're looking smack at it, and you're going, God, where are you in this? And God reminds us that his silence is not absence. God's hiddenness is not abandonment. God is weaving, orchestrating, managing. Press this a little further to bring it home. We're also reminded as we look at this text that not only does God work through coincidences in our lives, but sometimes especially and particularly through, and I put this in quotes, bad events. What do I mean? When you look at this text, you guys, how many of these events were bad? 
think of the events that were bad events. What do I mean? Most of the things that happened in the chain of events were bad in a sense that although they turned out for tremendous good, the result of evil deeds. Hostile tourists from Asia, many assassination attempts and plots on his life, the corruption of the political officials, the cowardice of Festus and Felix, and the list goes on and on. All of these bad, evil deeds somehow are used by God. Secondly, they're evil and bad in a sense. They were extremely painful and traumatic for Paul. Not only were they bad events and circumstances brought upon him, but they were bad and traumatic in a sense that he assassination plots, beaten within an inch of his life, shipwrecks he'll face, numerous, numerous charges and attacks on his character, lies thrown at him, false imprisonment for things that he didn't do and doesn't deserve. All of these events. Somehow God weaves and orchestrates in such a way that they result in this opportunity of Romans 8.28 opportunity that might have never happened. Let me press this even further. Everybody, look up here. When I think about this, when I think about my own life, the biggest struggle that I have is, God, well, what about stuff that I get myself into? Anybody? God, what about stuff I get into? What about my own moral failure? What about my own shortcomings? What about stuff that I just jack up in my life and just mess up in my life? God, what about that? Do you even use, and you know what the wonderful promise is? Yes! Hallelujah! Yes! God uses our sin, our rebellion, our wickedness, even for result of his glory, our good. The Bible says clearly in James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, God never causes us or tempts us to sin. But God says in Scripture, throughout the Scripture we find this, from Abraham all the way on, God somehow is able to weave. God somehow is able to integrate. God somehow is able to put together even our rebellion, even our sin, even the things that we do to jack things up. In such a way that it results in his glory, our good, and redemption and salvation for others. How many of you is that good news to? It is tremendous, tremendous news. God is so great that somehow, and some of you need to hear this today. Because you think the mistakes and failures that you've had, things that you've done in the past, it disqualified you for who God is and what he wants to do in your life. You're sitting here thinking, my mistakes and my failures in the past, Peter, is disqualified for the mercy and grace of God. I want to tell you right now, in God's eyes, there's no such thing as a plan B for your life. God doesn't have a backup plan for your life. He is working for you. Amen? <sighs> Best example I could think of in Scripture is a guy named Jacob. Do you remember Jacob? He couldn't stop lying. <laughs> Deceives his father. Poor blind dad. He betrays his older brother. And his sin, yes, dogs him all of his life because there are severe consequences to sin in our lives. And yet what happens? 
God in his mercy and grace enables him to meet Rachel, the love of his life. Enables him to carry on the messianic line. Do some of us go, so his sins were fortunate. He got to meet Rachel. No! His sin has severe consequences and they dogged him all of his life. But did it disqualify him for the plan that God had for his life and the work that he wants to do? The answer, no. God doesn't have a backup plan for your life. He is at work. He is at work. You know what I thought about this week? I thought about how often it is that I uh, complain and grumble when God doesn't do things that I want him to do. Anybody? But you know what dawned on me this week? What dawned on me this week is how, I, how little I thank God when I don't get what I deserve. I thought this week about how if God in his perfect justice had given me what I deserved each and every point in my life where I ran, where I rebelled, where I made myself God. If God had treated me in perfect justice and given me what I deserved, I tell you right now, there's no way that I'm standing before you today. I don't know if anybody in here could relate to this because I'm one of those people. God, I'm praying for these things. How come they don't come? I'm asking you for these things. Where are you? This week, you know what I intentionally did? I thought about all the things that I didn't get that I deserved and I said, God, I thank you. And that I am where I am today, your pastor. Because God took even my rebellion, even my sin, even my wickedness. And in his perfect love, wove them together. But what about difficulty of others? What about others' failures and shortcomings? And I'm going to end with this. What about difficulties and hardships that come as a result of other people? And this is the hardest thing for me right now, even as I preach. Because the hardest thing for me as a pastor sometimes is throughout the week when people come into my life and people come into my office and they share unimaginable things that they've gone through. They share horrendous things that they've gone through or people that they know that have gone through. And they come into my office and they look at me and saying, are you telling me that somehow God is still in control? That somehow God is still at work? That somehow God is able to make good come out of this? And if it wasn't for God's truth, I'd crawl into a corner and go, no, I don't. But God's truth says, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked. Do you know what that's saying? 
Not only are little things a part of God's plan, not only are senseless things a part of God's plan, but the Bible says, yes, even the wicked things, even evil deeds to which somebody goes, did God cause it? Is God, is God the author of evil? Is God the author of suffering and injustice in the Bible? Emphatically, check it out. James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 categorically says that God is never, ever the author of evil. God is never, ever the author of evil. And the responsibility of the evil belongs to the evil doer. The responsibility and the accountability of the evil deeds belong to the evil doer. And every single one of us will stand before the judgment of God. God is absolutely clear. But you know what else tells us? When terrible things happen, not only God does not cause them, when terrible things happen, far from standing aloof, far from standing detached from the suffering and evil that we go through, brought upon, yes, sometimes by other people. God weeps with us. God is moved. I was studying John chapter 11 this week in preparation for this. And there is this scene where Jesus is standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. And NIV kind of chickens out in the interpretation because NIV says, and Jesus was deeply moved. And you and I think the picture is Jesus going, my friend, my close friend is gone. And he's crying. No. In Greek, it literally says Jesus snorted. In anger. Jesus is standing outside the tomb of Lazarus and he's not just weeping and deeply moved because his friend is gone. Jesus is angry at evil. Jesus is angry at sin. Jesus is angry at what has happened because it wasn't a part of God's plan. So here is Jesus standing outside, not just weeping with those who are weeping, but he is angry. And what does he do? He does something about that anger. Why? Because a few weeks after that, Jesus goes to the cross and he dies so that he can end suffering, evil, and injustice once and for all. And we see in the example of Jesus our response to those who suffer, to those who experience evil. It is unbiblical to sit there and go, oh well. It is unbiblical to go, if it's God's will. God says, you weep with those who are hurting and you fight to eradicate it. Because when I come back, it's going to be all eradicated. So you weep with them and you fight the injustice and evil and suffering until I come back. That's what Paul does. Paul doesn't just sit there and go, well, injustice. Oh, well, no. He says, this legal system is not fair. I appeal to Caesar. He fights, but in the midst of it, he has poise. Why? Proverbs 16.4, which says, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked Even the bad things, even the evil things, somehow our God has the ability to work over and to weave. Somehow our God has the ability to take these very painful, difficult things so that it would result in His glory our good and salvation of men and women. You need to know that we as Christians 
when evil and suffering hit, our response is not one of passive, well, you know, God, God, only God knows. The Bible says our response in the midst of it. It's not just a flippant, well, God just, you know, he works for all good. Our response is to be on our knees. And when we need to say, God, increase my faith because I just don't see it. Show me, God, how you would orchestrate and pull these, even the evil and wicked things, together in such a way that you would bring glory to you, good to me, and salvation for the world. I need to leave you with this because many of you are sitting there going, Peter, if I just knew what God was doing, I would respond better. Anybody? Come on, be honest. Anybody? If I just could see it. This is a wonderful balance in Scripture. The Lord works out even the wicked for his end. Why is that important? We might not know until the end. But I want to know right now, by Saturday, that's what I would do if I was God. Well, last time I checked, you're a little underqualified for the job. (laughs) Why is this important? We have the example of someone like Joseph who goes through horrendous injustice, slavery, and horrendous wrongs by his own family for crying out loud, not to mention, you know, Potiphar's wife. But it's not until the very end he is able to look and say, you know what? God somehow orchestrated and organized all of these things in such a way that who I am today is because of that. And my family is healed emotionally, psychologically, and an entire part of the world that would have been decimated because of famine are saved. And that's why we have Genesis 50, 20. What you meant for evil, my brothers, God meant for good. So will you please know and not know what God is doing? What do I mean? Know that despite the circumstances and despite appearances, despite what God Despite your ability to see what God might be doing, no, 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 beyond the shadow of a doubt that even our moral failures and shortcomings and even the wickedness and evil deeds of others that for us are incredibly painful and confusing, God somehow is at work. That his silence is not his absence. That his hiddenness is not his abandonment. And we can stake our faith to know, God, you're there. No, and also not no. Don't expect that by Saturday somehow God is going to come in saying, there, there, I know you're impatient, Peter. Let me show you why this is happening. But rest in this truth. That our God, our God, our God is at work. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing is necessary that he withholds. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing is necessary that he withholds. 
God, I know I need that. I know I need that in my life. And yet, if in God in his perfect wisdom doesn't give it and deliver it in his perfect wisdom, our God says, you don't absolutely need it, my child. God, how is this coming into my life in this way going to ever to make sense? How is this ever going to work together? My child, even though it might be beyond your ability to see because you're just looking at your circumstances, I am going to use that, orchestrate that, even those things. What my mom did, what your mom did, what my dad did, what your dad did, what my family did, what your family did, what my church did, what your church did, what my boyfriend did, what your boyfriend did, what my girlfriend did, what your girlfriend did, things that I don't understand, things that you don't understand. God is in control. Close your eyes. Let's pray. Today is communion. But before we take communion... I want us to be the church. I want us to be the hands and feet of Christ. And I want us to minister to one another. If you are sitting here today if you're sitting here today and you're angry, you're confused, you're bitter, if you're sitting here today and you've been battling and wrestling God, if you're sitting here today and you know you've been wearing a good mask and, and saying all the right Christian lingo and praise God, and yet you've been struggling and battling inside, because Romans 8.28, that God works all things, is just the concept, it's just the theory. It's not real to you. That you might be where I'm at today. And I know that God never ever meant for me to wrestle with this alone, intellectually. God never ever meant for me to wrestle with this alone. So I'm going to ask you what I mentioned earlier, which is to admit that you're weak. To swallow your pride and say, you know what? Can somebody pray for me? Because this truth just isn't getting through. It just isn't getting through. And I'm tired and I'm at my wit's end. And I don't know if I can go much longer. Can you stand from where you are with me? Stand up. Stand up. 
Come on, don't be shy. Come on. We're going to minute. We're going to be the church today. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Please stand up. I need you to stand up today. I need you to stand up today. If that is you and you need that, stand up today. If not, you can sit down. But for those of us that are at that place going, God, stand up. Stand up. I'm going to give you a little more, few more seconds so that your brothers and your sisters will know who among us, who among us. Stand up. And now what I need is for those of you that are stand, sitting next to your brothers and your sisters that are standing. I need you to stand up and I need you to go to them. Go right now. Just in the pews. Stand up. Surround them, please. Put your hand on their shoulder. Put your hand on their hands. Make sure that physically and literally you are there with them. You are there for them. I don't want any single person to be alone. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some, um, some time, just a minute to do that, that child of God, that precious child of God. I want you to, to together just pray, pray into them, not just say, God, help them. No, pray into them this truth, pray into them this biblical truth, pray into them the truth found in scripture. The Lord works out everything for his own ends. Pray into their scripture. The lot is cast into the lap, but ultimately, the decision belongs to the Lord. Pray into their hearts. God works in all things for those who love him and I call according to his purpose. I'm going to give you some time to do that right now. Minister, pray into them. Pray into God's truth. Go, be the vessels of Christ. Go, be the instruments of God. Go pray. Go pray. Go pray. Go pray, minister. Go pray. Go pray. Go pray. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God, I pray for one another. We pray for each other. Oh, God, we lift up one another. Oh, God, we become hands and feet of Christ to one another. Oh, God, we pray in your truth to one another. Oh, God, we pray in God your grace to one another. Oh, God, we pray in your work in one another. Oh, God, we pray in, we pray in we pray in we pray in oh god 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 you wonders we pray in oh god we pray in oh god we pray in oh god
thank you for your ministry, body of Christ. Thank you for being his hands and his feet. Thank you for being the mouth this morning. If you're not a Christian and you're not, you don't consider yourself someone who has a personal relationship with Christ. What we're about to do here in the next few minutes, please feel free to observe. But communion and Lord's Supper, communion and Lord's Supper, the scripture says is for those who have professed their faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. Because as we come and take of the broken bread and as we drink of the poured out cup, we are acknowledging this powerful truth claim that because of his body broken for us and because of his blood shed for us, we have the privilege and the opportunity to come and receive of his grace, receive of his mercy so that we might be renewed, recharged, forgiven. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, the cup of the new covenant, and he poured it. And he said, this is my blood that has been shed for you. I am at work in your life. I have been and always will. The Lord's table is open to us. Not because we deserve it, but because we are privileged to do so. So whenever you are ready, if you want to continue to pray, you can do that. But whenever you're ready, come forward and take the elements and offer praise and thanksgiving to our God for who He is and what He has done. The Lord invites us, church. Please come forward. Child of God, brother, sister in Christ. I leave you as I pray this prayer of blessing just with that simple chorus. How great is our God. How great is our God. When you have a hard time seeing it, Look to the cross. When you have a hard time believing it, look to the cross. When you feel confused and alone, look to the cross. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, was the ultimate greatness of God displayed. As you go forth from this place, child of God, go forth in boldness, empowered by the Spirit, that He is for you, He is with you, He loves you, He loves you more than you will ever know. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday.